Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. So before we got started, mm-hmm. you were talking about someone in your class. Okay. And you classified them as older. Older than me. You didn't say that. Well, okay. You said they are older. Older. Do you want to tell everyone what you classified older Okay. He's while we're recording? This guy's like 40-ish. Okay. <laughs> Older, older than me. In my class, okay. no, it's fine. I am it's fine. I'm older than it's most. Fine. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to sorry to hurt you. Sir. I just also want to point out that the majority of our listeners are probably over forty. Yeah, well, that's that's true. Well, I don't. Sorry if I offended anyone, but you didn't you, you have did. to know my. They didn't have to know what I said, Tim. They did. You could have they spared needed to them. Know. <laughs> they needed to know. You could have spared them the hurt. <laughs> oh well. Well, what are we talking about today, Tim? Today we're talking about church history. We are. How fun is that? Again, what do you know? It's like the seventh week in a row. And uh, and, and today's focus mm-hmm. is more along the lines of the church life. Yeah. What was it like to be a Christian mm-hmm. in these times? Yeah. I, I know that we've talked about big name people and and major movements. But these people are the minority. Yeah. Your everyday Christian, what are they experiencing? Yeah. Right? And that doesn't mean that we're not going to still talk about the names that are most pivotal, most, is a touchy word. People who are, we know a lot about because they wrote stuff down. Right. So they're important from a historical level. Right. Because we have a record of what they did or said. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah. The reality is, like, we, you know, we've talked about these big, these big players, these highly educated uh, thinkers, right? The Jer- the Jeromes, right? The Justin Martyrs, and all these these kind of folks. Actually, maybe we haven't talked about Jerome yet. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We talked about these these big players, and the reality is that you know, most, the vast, vast majority of Christians were just everyday people, right? In fact, Christianity was criticized by pagan thinkers because they didn't do their teaching in an academy. Mm-hmm. They did their teaching in kitchens and places of business and tanneries. And, you know, th- th- it was like it was that is where evangelism happened. That is where, you know, ideas were shared. And that continues to be the case. Yeah. The okay. most significance is not in a known name or in an office held. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every believer is called to the ministry of the gospel and those people make the difference oh yeah the difference in really successful churches and struggling churches can be but is not necessarily the lead pastor yeah that's true it's the response of the people and what they're going to take on Mm -hmm. and uh and in that has been the case since the beginning. Yeah, for sure. And so a couple of things I want to point out. One of them is we have not yet mentioned a woman. I think, yeah, not many. I think we one of the martyrs I mentioned a few weeks back was a woman. She had seven sons or something. So, but, you're right, but you're right, yeah. Yeah, so women, even in the early church, outnumber the men. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's the case today. And it was the case then. It's true. Number of martyrs, mm-hmm. still, the women were significant in that. Mm-hmm. The reason they don't get talked about in the same way uh, in, in this historical podcast is not because they are um, inconsequential mm-hmm. or insignificant. It's because they weren't the authors. Yeah, they weren't writing stuff down. for the So part. we don't have their history, but they were doing the support work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those kinds of things that were the foundations that privileged those people of education to have the time mm-hmm. to do these things. Yeah, in particular, amongst those women, widows. Oh, yeah. In particular. Right. Uh, were kind of the the frontline workers to some degree in, in the early church, right? The ones kind of getting things done, um, taking care of people. 
mm-hmm. you know, making food and dispersing things. So yeah, we yeah. see that. We see Paul talking about that in to Timothy. That's true. In, yeah, in the Ephesian church. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about everyday life, and then a controversy. Yeah, that's kind of the the plan for today. Yeah, that's essentially it. So where do you want to start? Um, well, we can just kind of we've already kind of touched on this about how like it was kind of just everyday Christians. I think the thing that we may have mentioned before that people need to understand is that the vast majority of Christian converts at this stage of the game uh, were not from the upper echelons of society. Right. Uh, it's slaves. It's working class. Some middle class, maybe. Um, when you have kind of a an important wealthy aristocrat converting to Christianity, it's a, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rarity. Now, s- some of those individuals do become leaders again because they had an education, because they could read and write, so they could kind of engage with certain things. They they didn't just hear the word preached; they could actually read it for themselves, right? Which was a luxury for for people at that time. Um, but we could talk about well, why don't we talk about what what worship looked like for them? Okay. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Let's hear it. Go for it. So uh, from the beginning, Christians met on first day of the week, Lord's Day, Sunday, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it was not an invention of Constantine. I'm glad you worship. said it because I was going there. Yeah. It's not that. Yeah. So if you have, I, I feel like everyone has the, someone in their life pushing this. You gotta, it it might just be, be, it might just be because of my position. Mm. I have multiple people that push this at least once a year. Right. <laughs> um, the idea that the church only ever met on Saturday until Constantine brought about this concept of sun worship yeah, and tried to link it to the Roman gods. And that's when it was moved to Sunday. But there is record of a distinction mm-hmm. between Sabbath and, Mm-hmm. as a day of rest and the Lord's day as a time of worship. Mm-hmm. It is historically recorded that they would get up before the sunrise mm-hmm. to worship yeah. because Sunday was a work day. Right. Not a day when the Romans worshiped their sun God. <laughs> and then they would have to go to work. And then after work, they would come back together for an evening meal. So right. we have morning and an evening worship on Sundays. Interesting. Even in the Roman period. That's a good point. And, yeah. And this idea that Constantine invented this is just exhausting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But Constantine does make Sunday a holiday. He does. And he does it not in order to turn Christianity to that day to worship, but because he turns to Christianity. Yeah. And that's the day of worship. Exactly. And that's the privilege of being emperor. You got to get your... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cart and your horse in the right that's right door. yeah yeah that's right that's right so typically these gatherings that happen on sundays um would often happen we we have this picture of like you know christians hiding in caves and in the catacombs and there were times where that would occur sure but typically it was in private homes mm-hmm. at this stage of the game before constantine right uh before the legalization of christianity so they're meeting in private homes um in other more remote locations when absolutely necessary. So because of that, you know, there was there was a limit to how many could come together at once, mm-hmm. right? If you had a wealthy person in the church who had some space, a villa or something, maybe you could get away with a half-decent crowd. But it was, you know, it, the church began growing to a point where you you had multiple congregations throughout a city. Early on, you'd have one church. Everybody in that town who believed in Jesus was all worshiping together. Eventually, that just became impossible because the only place they could gather were private homes. Right. Um, I found a, an early description of what an order of service would kind of look like. Oh, nice. Let's hear it. Okay. So order of service in... Did they print it in the bulletin? Second. Because that's always a thing. Do you or do you not print the order of service in the bulletin? Yeah, you might need a last-minute change, and you don't want to put yourself in a box, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so here's how it would, would look like. It would generally begin with an extended reading of Scripture. Uh, sometimes the New Testament, sometimes the Old Testament, but they would read read the Bible, read a good chunk of it. Then a sermon or exhortation that would be based on that reading would happen. So someone would get up, and it's based on what we just read, this is what we ought to do. This is what we ought to believe. This is, you know, this is the implication of, of what's going on. 
So that would happen. So scripture? Scripture? Exegesis. Yes, okay. exactly. A then homily. A, a homily, yeah. Then a time of corporate prayer would follow. And what this likely looked like was different than the kind of the modern Western concept of corporate prayer. prayer. Uh, more participatory um, time of prayer where, you know, the the gathered members would collectively be praying. Um, maybe in turn, maybe even at the same time, uh, but it would be a corporate prayer. At that point, those who are not yet baptized would be excused. They would be excused, and then those who remained would take communion. Um, they would take the Lord's Supper probably almost definitely every single Sunday. Uh, that was a central part of the gathering. Sure. Uh, deacons would also be sent out with the elements, with bread and wine, uh, to go to those who couldn't make it. So let's say someone was sick, at home sick, or an elderly person couldn't make the journey. They would actually take communion to them um, in certain circumstances. Um, and then at the end, they would take up an offering and take up a monetary offering and to make sure that the needs in the community would be taken care of. So you kind of had two services within a service. You kind of had the public service and then the private service. Yeah, and some churches still do that. Yeah. I've been to churches where they said, if you're not a member of this local body, mm -hmm. you mind stepping out into the foyer? We're going to take communion. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's something to, worth mentioning here before we get deeper into what Christian life looked like at, at this time period. Just because they were doing this a long time ago, doesn't mean that everything about what they did is necessarily right and superior to, to how we do things. Right. Right. So they had certain traditions and methods of how they would go about certain things. Scripture leaves a lot of space, actually, mm -hmm. um, for how worship can be done and what Christian life looks like. Um, so again, it's interesting to read these things, but it's not like, oh, well, then should we be doing the offering at the end of the service? And, you know, because that's what, they, no, no, just don't get caught up in that. This is just interesting, insightful stuff to help us understand what what life was like at that time. So. That's what I love about 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Mm -hmm. When Paul is instructing on the Lord's Supper, he says, what I've received, I give to you. Mm -hmm. Nothing more, nothing less. Mm. And he whittles that down to, here's the bread, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Here's the blood, it's the new covenant for you. Do this as often as you remember, do this in remembrance of me. Mm -hmm. For as often as you eat his bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's all the instruction we have. Yeah, it's not like communal loaf versus wafers, communal cup. Versus, it doesn't have any of that. No, that's all that that's just left open to. Right. So it's it's left open and therefore should be left open. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what that. But I feel pretty good about that because that's not too different than a Memorial Sunday. No, not really. We don't really take a we can't really pass a plate these days. By Memorial Sunday, I mean a Sunday at Memorial. Yeah. Well, right. it's the same. Not everybody understands <laughs> that. Some people don't know Memorial Baptist Church. <laughs> but yeah, no, we do the corporate prayer and the, the reading and the. The preaching. Sure. And the we also sing. That wasn't on the sing. list. That wasn't. They but did. hymns were common in the time. They definitely, yeah, they definitely yeah. sang. Hymns are in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that is the gathering. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the unbaptized were taken out. Yeah. Truth is, the concept of a, an unbaptized believer Someone who would say, well, I've been a believer my whole life, or I've been a believer for a number of years. Mm -hmm. I've just never chosen to be baptized. That is just not a historical concept. No. Right? And, and so it wasn't that they have this person over here who's been a part of the church for 40 years and just never got around to being baptized. Mm -hmm. Right? The issue is these people are in process. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about that process. Okay. Because that process is fascinating. It is. Right? So in in the New Testament, in Acts, mm -hmm. we have things like, here's the gospel, there's water, what hinders you from being baptized? Right. Yeah. Right? These immediate kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of people say to me, okay, you do new members classes and new members interviews? Mm -hmm. Or 
baptismal candidate interviews, mm-hmm. um, that's not scriptural. Right. Like you're being a gatekeeper where you don't need to be a gatekeeper. Right. It's right. not up to you to determine whether or not this person is truly a believer hmm. and to baptize them. Um, there's a little bit of validity in that. I, sure. I'm not going to pretend like that's completely outrageous. Mm-hmm. The early church took it way further than I would. They did. <laughs> I meet with someone one or two times, and those people yeah. who do new members or, or baptismal candidate classes and stuff like that would be like one or two times. You can't learn anything in one or two interviews. Right. <laughs> um, they did three years. Yeah. Sometimes six years. Yeah. And it was a measuring of your life across those years. To see how you measured up in the end. Yeah. It was pretty rigorous and pretty intense. And it was it was a lot. <laughs> right. I, I have just I want to read to you a couple paragraphs. Sure. About some of the discussions that were taking place mm. on how different people in society would be treated differently according to their desire to be baptized into the church. Interesting. Okay. And, and I, I think I think it's worth pointing out, in my opinion, how we do this is not stated explicitly in Scripture. Mm-hmm. It is described in Scripture, how they did it, but not mm-hmm. prescribed. Right. And, and I think it depends a lot on your culture, in your cultural yeah. moment. Yeah. Right? If I was the bishop of a church under serious persecution— mm-hmm. And someone said, hey, I believe in your Jesus. How do I get on the inside and start visiting homes and yeah. getting to know everyone in town who's a believer? Yeah. I'd be like, who are you and where'd you come from? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I hear So you. there's there's a level of sure. protection in that. Yeah, yeah. We are an incorporated Canadian entity mm-hmm. and a congregational vote steers the direction of our church. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to... No, we want to know who our members are. Sure. We want to know what they believe, mm-hmm. what level of commitment they have to the church. Sure. Because it makes a difference. So. I'm excited. Regarding the conduct, the, the measurement of life, from the pronouncement of I want to be baptized until the however many years it took them to prove themselves to the church. Slaves were taught to please their masters. Biblical. Married persons to be content with their spouse. Okay. Okay. The unmarried person to avoid fornications. Okay. Prostitutes, sodomites, and magicians were not even considered for membership. Okay. Even upon repentance. Wait, magicians? Magicians. (laughs) (laughs) Brothel keepers, uh, actors in the pagan theater, charioteers, gladiators, and officials... Uh, who put on the public games, pagan priests, military officers, and magistrates had to cease from their professions or were rejected from baptism. Wow. Got to quit your job. Yeah. You, you can't continue in that work. Well, I mean, if you're running a brothel, fair enough. Sure. If you're a gladiator, yeah. you're like, oh, I saw this guy at church last week, and now it's my job to cut his head off. <laughs> right, yeah, okay. Uh, sculptors and painters... Must not make idols. Okay. Right? So their art had to stay secular. Fair. um, Or else they would be rejected. Educators who had to teach pagan literature of the time would do better to cease if they had no other craft they were permitted to continue. Interesting. Soldiers should not kill or swear by a military oath. And a catechumen or believer who wanted to join the army was rejected. Interesting. A man who had a concubine must marry her legally or he was rejected. And a concubine must be faithful to the man with whom she had relations. So that is to say it wasn't up to the woman Mm. legally to be able to say, now we need to get married and do this the right way. Right. She doesn't have that option. Right. So treat him as if he was a husband. Right, okay. Right, in in faithfulness. Um, 
I thought those were pretty fascinating. Yeah. Especially in light of the paper you're working on. Yeah, actually, that's I true. That's why I didn't tell you beforehand. I just wanted to raise yeah, your eyebrows. Okay. Well, no, I already know that, that early church fathers were not down with, uh, yeah, with military service, but it was also... It was different. Yeah, there there was a whole there was a, the thing is with all these professions you listed, there were inherently pagan aspects that were tied up in what they would would be doing, right? Yeah, and the only person allowed to continue were the people who taught paganism, <laughs> because they had no other job. Why are charioteers a part of this? Like, it, you, surely it means more than a cab driver. No, I think I think it's like <laughs> charioteers, like in the races. I think that's what they're talking about. Okay, like the competitive races. NASCAR so drivers couldn't be a NASCAR. Are, driver. NASCAR drivers are out. <laughs> no, but can you imagine? Can you imagine? There goes happening? there goes the Bible Belt right there. <laughs> right there. We just lost Alabama, folks. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, no, that that's interesting. Um, so what would happen actually once they were done this process? Then they would prepare for their baptism, and baptisms typically happened, not always, but typically happened only once a year. They had one baptism Sunday. Yeah, and all of this is a part of a group of teachings called the uh, the apostolic tradition. Yes, yeah, and so they would generally happen. This again, we're all we're talking in general broad terms here, but generally they would happen on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And what the catechumens, those were those people who were preparing to be baptized, would do is they would fast Friday and Saturday, and uh, and then they would be baptized again, typically. Uh, by immersion, or if not, there wasn't enough water kneeling and pouring on top of them. Uh, I read an interesting thing. Men and women would be um, baptized in separate groups because they were baptized completely naked, which I thought was different. Not a not a part of the actual apostolic tradition. No. <laughs> as far as, yeah, I don't think, yeah, on Pentecost, you had like 4,000... Stripping down. I don't think that's that's what happened. And right. And, and so when you when you see the term apostolic tradition, just the name. That's the, just the name. Yeah. And and it doesn't mean like this is what Peter told us to do. Mm-hmm. Right. We sat down with the sons of Zebedee, and they were like, "Hey, this is how we do it." Right. Right. It means this is what this is what we've determined as best practice. Yeah. And they're going to throw on the it's, name it's apostolic tradition. Church policy and procedures. Mostly by Hippolytus, <laughs> who wasn't an apostle. Right, right. Um, upon rising from the waters, they'd be given a white robe. They'd be anointed with oil because it was a symbolic thing that they be, they were brought into the royal priesthood of Christ. And uh, and then they'd also um, be given milk and honey as a sign of the promised land that they were now entering into. So just these kind of neat little features they did. I mean, some churches give you a book. They used to give you a snack. So, yeah, and, and they had their own complications with baptism aside from just someone having to be catechized. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things, particularly as Baptist ministers, that we deal with are mm-hmm. people who come to us and say, Oh, I've already been baptized. Right. Uh, but baptized in a tradition that wasn't confessional, mm-hmm. they didn't state their faith. Mm-hmm. And the early church, even back then, we're, we're talking roughly 250, 225 to 300 is. Mm-hmm kind of what we're covering today right um even then they're dealing with this concept of multiple baptisms rebaptisms who baptized you the first time right was that person later declared a heretic right if they and so where they ended up kind of landing i think some would say is where we've landed but i i think it's worth drawing the difference where they ended up landing was who baptized you mattered who was the teacher that baptized you, and is that valid? Mm-hmm. Right? You were baptized under a Gnostic, and be like, then you didn't understand the gospel, and right. so that baptism, you need to be rebaptized. Right, right. Um, whereas, I don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. My statement would be, you were baptized under a Gnostic, what did you think you were signing up for? Yeah. And if that person was able to state the gospel, I'd be like, oh, you know what? You were saved despite the errancy of of this person who baptized you. Right. Right? So it wouldn't be about the person who did it. It would be about the condition of your heart and your understanding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think it's, this is one of those things where, like I said, they were trying to cover their bases to make sure that people who were coming in were truly valid baptismal candidates. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's I think that still stands, right? That's why I do the interviews because I've had a number of people contact me and be like, hey, I want to be baptized. And I start talking to them, why do you want to be baptized? And they can't repeat a single thing about mm-hmm. the gospel, mm-hmm. right? It has, you know, my grandma passed away and it would really mean, it would have meant a lot to her. I didn't do it when she's alive. I want to do it to honor her, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm not baptizing yeah. you. Yeah. You don't understand yeah. the gospel. And so mm-hmm. this is this is in part what they're doing. It, it's not just about making people jump through hoops mm-hmm. or creating a club or anything like that. Uh, there is some real benefit to these things, especially mm-hmm. early on in the church. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe not especially. Maybe just there's real benefit to these things. Just in general, yeah. Yeah, but three years... It's a long time. Three years is excessive. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Especially when life expectancy was so much shorter. <laughs> and there was pretty much a fresh like round of persecution popping up every like five to ten years. <laughs> right. It's a, long, it's a long time. Although, the period we're in right now is the first period of some relative peace for the mm. Christians. Like mm-hmm. 200 to 235, I'm reading, was mm. a bit of a safe time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although that doesn't last. That doesn't last, no. No. A um, couple other things just with kind of life, some some things, some notes I made. Um, in regards to marriage, so if there was a Christian marriage happening, it generally was, you know, the, the bishop, the local Christian leader had to be aware of it and kind of okay it. Um, but they were not always, they wouldn't necessarily be legally binding marriages. And the reason hmm. for that is, as you mentioned before, there was more women than men who embraced Christianity. And in, under Roman law, a woman could marry up a class, but she couldn't marry down. So what would happen would be you'd have kind of more affluent women joining the church, fall in love with working class Christian guy. That can't be an actual legal marriage under Roman law. But the church would do it anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of these, these interesting things that they'd have to kind of deal with that would be different and so then you'd have you know these people living together who considered one another husband and wife but in the public sphere weren't right which is a weird thing that we just it's different than what we would it's kind of anyways it's a whole thing but you know what i've done i've done some of those weddings and until until i got my residency Mm -hmm. my canadian residency Mm -hmm. um i would do weddings for people and then I'd tell them either beforehand or afterward, you're going to have to go to someone who's a Canadian citizen mm-hmm. and ordained and allow them to right. walk you through the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, but always with that same concept of, mm-hmm. you know, the state doesn't care if you're married or not. Yeah. Right? There's like nothing to them. Ontario doesn't care. Right. Um, but you got to do some paperwork. Mm-hmm. Right? But before God and before the church... Mm-hmm. It matters. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so we'll do that, and then you need to hustle out. Mm-hmm. Usually people, in order just to cover the bases and keep everyone, usually people do it beforehand. Mm. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, so in regards to evangelism, um, as time went on, you didn't have the same thing that you had in the Book of Acts as much. You didn't have career missionaries. That became less and less common. Mm-hmm. Um, it was essentially just people locally sharing their faith and that's how things spread and that's how the church grew but for that reason christianity spread mainly in rural areas or sorry no mainly in urban areas excuse me sorry in the cities that's where christianity was happening out in the countryside there was there was virtually no christian presence um even after constantine it took a while and Mm -hmm. so it's it kind of made me chuckle because it's kind of the opposite of today Right. (laughs) Where like the urban areas are just like destitute. And then it's like these like, you know, you have the driving to like a small town and they've got like five massive churches that are full on Sunday. And you're like, how does this work? But anyways, just kind of a curious thing, an oddity, I guess. Yeah. And and for that, like we we talked a couple of weeks back about the various centers, Mm -hmm. Alexandria, Mm -hmm. for example, that were rising up at this point. This is where Rome really starts solidifying itself as the hub of Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It is now it is now the place. There was a time when it was Jerusalem, mm-hmm. then it sort of fragments and becomes a little bit of Rome, a little bit of Alexandria, kind of here and there kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But now Rome is 
kind of the place. Yeah. Uh, it has not yet become the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. People aren't taking orders from Rome, mm-hmm. but the trends in Rome are very influential. Oh, yeah. And the leaders in Rome are universally seen as leaders. Yeah. It's definitely a first amongst equals thing. Right. If not even a little bit more. Yeah. And so this, the end of the third century is the beginnings of that. Mm -hmm. um, Preeminence of Rome. Right. And and in part two, because that's where Peter and Paul both died. Mm -hmm. And so people see that as an honorable thing. And it was just the biggest place. I mean, that's how the empire was structured. Right. right, it was much more centralized than than like for us in our Canadian context, or even for our American listeners, right? Where you have these massive hubs all over the place, and maybe your capital city isn't even a significantly big place as it is in actually both Canada and the U.S. Right, but Rome was a giant. Mm-hmm. R- Rome was where it was at, um, so it kind of makes sense in a Roman world that even the church, as it spreads through the Roman world, would kind of find its hub there. Um, one kind of cool thing, and then we can kind of move on to some contra the controversy that the church had Ooh. to navigate um, in regards to symbolism, because we, you know, we there's a lot of different symbols associated with Christianity, but the most common and prominent symbol early on um, was actually the fish, ichthus, ichthus, yeah, and the re- part of the reason for it, I mean, there's obviously a lot of imagery in scripture about fish. Jesus gets into the whole fish thing a lot. Fishers of men, but ichthus, this this Greek word uh, for fish, was actually code. It was an acrostic for a phrase. So when you saw fish, or when you spelt the word fish, um, it's the Greek letters iota, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma, um, which was code. And I'll, I'll get to English eventually, but was Jesus Christos theos huias soter which is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Right, and they would they would press these out of chrome and put them on the back of their wagons. <laughs> and then but ride not it, their chariots, because no chariot no drivers. Chari- no chariots, not chariots. That would, be, that would be reason for excommunication. But on their wagons, and then just above it, they would carve like silhouettes of their family, like a husband <laughs> and a mom, three kids, Half and a dozen a dog. slaves. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Okay, um, it was, hey, I'm just being historically accurate. Okay, so let's get into. But the the fish was exactly the same one we see today. Yeah. Like oh, just yeah. the basically two lines that form. That's, yeah, that was a the. A fish-ish kind the of a shape. quote unquote Jesus fish has been around for a while. Yep. Yeah. And, and you, you put that on your doorpost or wherever and it was forehead it was (laughs) i'm kidding i'm kidding sorry (laughs) too far too far (laughs) verbal reprimand uh and and that was that was a way of if people were in trouble Mm -hmm. finding that just acknowledging fellowship like you said they're not all going to the same services it's not like they're meeting all at the same time Mm -hmm. bump into other christians around we made jokes about Putting it on your car, it kind of can do the same thing. Sure. Right? I've driven down the road and went, oh, look, that person's a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right? It's kind of a similar thing. Yeah, for sure. Yep. All right. You want to talk controversy? Let's do it. Because it's always, controversies are always fun. They are. They are. Yeah. All right. So as persecution starts ramping up mm-hmm. again. Again. We had a we had a breather. Not, a, not really a break. 35 years in the grand scheme of things is a a breather, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it starts to build again. And as it's building, we have Christians who are struggling with martyrdom mm-hmm. and some fall into martyrdom mm-hmm. and some avoid it, yeah. I think is probably the fairest way to say it. Mm-hmm. And so the church had a question, what do we do with people who are avoiding martyrdom? Mm-hmm. Well, how might one go about avoiding martyrdom? Right. Yeah, there's a variety of different things you could do. Um, those who avoided martyrdom... Okay, so some people would flee. Sure. Some people would succumb to the pressure. 
some people would lie, right? Mm-hmm. There, there were actually different terms uh, that they end up the that the church at the time had for people who had what they called lapsed. Yeah, all of them were called the lapsy. Yeah, the, the lapsed. Yeah, the lapsed. So like, even even if you're just like. Everyone in my neighborhood's getting arrested tomorrow mm-hmm. for being Christians, and we're gonna flee. That was a thing that Jesus commended and, and even instructed. Yeah, when they come, run. It's yeah. what Polycarp does. There were times when people tried to lay hands on Jesus, and he escaped from them. Right until his time was came. Right, and so. now people are like, "Oh, certain death. We should probably not be here." And they're <laughs> like, "Boom, you're the lapsed." Yeah. We question your salvation. Backsl- th- basically, the term just means backslider. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Backslider. Yeah. Because you didn't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... So in that regard, I would say misapplied. In that regard, yeah. But I mean, for those, there's some who actually offered sacrifices to idols. Right. Or some who would like forge documents or get other people to make documents up that said they had made those sacrifices to idols, even though they hadn't. And, and sometimes it wasn't... Like, you, you look at something as nefarious as, like, oh, they forged a document. Like, mm-hmm. how unchristian. Mm-hmm. Um, or they they paid someone off to do it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it wasn't even that. Sometimes you just have, like, my neighbor happens to be an official. We're pretty close. Mm-hmm. And he did this for me because he didn't want to see my family hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're not actively doing the thing. Yeah. And, I mean, think about the context, too. Like, okay... If you were if you were able in Germ you were living in Germany in World War II and you were able to create false documents for Jewish people that said they weren't actually Jewish and they were from Poland or something or what from other some you know what I mean like like and you did that or or you were you know you were in that keeping position. them keeping them hidden in your basement yeah keeping them alive Corey Ten Boom kind of a situation yeah, lying, right lying to to keep to preserve life like let's yeah not be too quick to. Right. Cast stones here. Right. We're not going to make a value statement, but we're going to say be careful about how quickly you make your value statements. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. A- and I think we we never defined what we meant by documents. So one of the things that people were required to carry mm-hmm. was a document proving that they had made a sacrifice in imperialistic worship, mm-hmm. right, to the emperor or other Roman gods. Mm-hmm. And so those are the documents that they're being asked for. Mm-hmm. And Christians in pos- Christians should be not in possession of these documents. Mm-hmm. But like you said, sometimes versions of these documents ended up in Christians' hands. Mm-hmm. And these people are also known as the lapsed. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there are a few characters that kind of come to the fore in the conversation around what to do about these people. Uh, one, one key player is a guy named Cyprian. So he was a North African. He's from Carthage. And that was one of the spots where when these flare-ups happened, they got hit kind of harder than, than other sure. places. Um, he had become a Christian at a later age. He got baptized at 35, uh, but kind of rose up through the quote-unquote ranks um, of the church, deacon, elder, then bishop. Um, but when this persecution flared up, he like fled, mm-hmm. right? He fled um, and was criticized for doing that, right? right? And, and he defended himself, you know, saying that, hey, at times Jesus and the apostles fled and that, that was okay. Um, the thing he wasn't okay with is while he was away in hiding, some of those Christians who had actually offered sacrifices, actually burned incense to the emperor, came back and the, the elders and deacons underneath of him we're allowing these people back into the church. And they just said, we're sorry we did it. Please forgive us. And he's like, well. You I did think, repent. Yeah. He's like, they repented, but like, mm, maybe there should be a little something else. Right. But then in Rome, <laughs> there's a kind of innovation. <laughs> and his perspective was, don't you ever let any of those people back into the church ever. They're done. Right. So the two schools of thought become rigorism yeah. and laxism. Yeah. Which is really the swings of the pendulum. Yeah. Right? Like totally. either either you're the rigorist, which is hyper legalistic. Oh yeah. Or you're the laxist, which just brings with it this concept of whatever. Who cares? Yeah, which is not the case. You just made pagan sacrifices. And, that, and Cyprian kind of fell in the middle, 
He does. Yeah. And and the the thing the thing that we have to consider the two passages of scripture that have to be considered in this discussion, mm. Matthew eighteen, mm. where it talks about what is church discipline, right? And it, it's not prevention of sin. When a brother falls, you go to them, you point out their sin so that they might repent and you've gained back your brother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yet, there is also a statement in Hebrews chapter 6 where it says that, it, he, he says, this, you know, guys, it's time to stop tiptoeing around like children and really get down to the meat of everything. Mm-hmm. And in 6.4, he says, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they would be crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Hmm. So there are the reason I want to put those two things out there is to say this is not just about people throwing out opinions. Right. This is about conducting the church as under shepherds of Christ, the way Christ would have his church conducted. Mm -hmm. And so that has to be taken into consideration. Now, one of them's, some of them are going to be right, some of them are going to be wrong. That's just the nature of a disagreement. Sure. But I don't want to just throw it out and be like, aren't these guys all crazy? Yeah, no. It's a it's a reasonable discussion the to have. The stakes were high, right? Like, I mean, it was, as you mentioned before, in regards to, like, this rigorous process of people becoming uh, catechumens to be baptized, right? Because they're like, they just don't want anybody just showing up and potentially compromising the whole church because they're like a sleeper agent, right? Um, or Or people saying, we are communing with Christ mm-hmm. in fellowship and in the fellowship of his suffering mm-hmm. when you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so there, there's a concern for the, for purity within the church. There's concern for like these people. It's like, okay, well, if you were willing to offer these sacrifices to Roman gods, like for you to just say, well, I'm sorry. Sorry. I did that. Like, it's I, I could see why people would say that's not enough, right? Yeah. Like we need we, there needs to be something more than that. And so the church as a whole, in a general sense, took this middle line of saying, "Okay, we will let you back in, but you have to sh- do penance." Sure, and, and imagine it in a real world scenario mm-hmm. where this person who you know lied and made a sacrifice to a false god mm. in order to save their skin. But you lost a family member mm. in that same raid who stood true to the witness of Jesus Christ. And this person comes in and just goes, my bad. Yeah. What, where are you? At that point, you can just remove all theological reason and just put yourself in the emotion. The feels of it all is not positive. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a tough place to be. Yeah. Um, and so that's what they're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this this kind of, this organization, this system of penitence begins to develop out of this kind of extreme situation, right? What ends up happening, though, <laughs> is over the next thousand plus years, this develops into this thing Mm -hmm. you know of what is the what is the specific cost for this specific sin that i have to do to make sure that i'm still good in the eyes of the church and therefore the eyes of god and becomes eventually one of the major causes of the protestant reformation yeah so but it's not there yet (laughs) the i yeah the, the thing is you have you have this feeling like you said for a person to just repent doesn't feel like enough. Mm-hmm. There's a price that needs to be paid. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make the argument that's a human and not a Christological argument. Right. That yeah. person, upon their repentance, is restored. Mm-hmm. So I would have been, in the time, considered 
a laxist. Right. Yeah. Maybe even a hyper laxist. Yeah, maybe probably me too, to be honest. But um because I think they have to be restored. Yeah. And if and if I lost friends and family and this person, then it's my job mm-hmm. to suck it up and say, I need to receive that person the way Christ received them. Mm-hmm. Grace and mercy, mm-hmm. not because of their works, but because of their faith and confession. Mm-hmm. Um which they avoided, yeah. uh, but are now claiming that they will, and, and there's nothing I can do about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's how I think they need to be received. But, but that idea that that's just not enough brings about this really bizarre, what does forgiveness look like? Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that passage in Hebrews is, is not talking about the restoration of a brother. It's talking about someone who walks away. If, if, if these people are making sacrifices— and not repenting of it, mm-hmm. they're like, no, this is just going to save my skin, and I'm sticking with it. I'm going to do this till the day I die. I think that's what Hebrews is talking about, mm-hmm. right? Not the not those people who say I messed up and I'm repentant. Mm-hmm. They're talking about people who are just choosing to walk away from the faith, mm-hmm. right? And that rigid, there is no forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I just don't see it. Yeah, and and depending on who you read. Like among, even amongst those who kind of said you have to do penitence, it's it's nuanced. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, you're still forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but we just can't let you back into our thing unless you show you you prove it. It is saying Jesus forgives you, but I don't. Yeah, it is kind of saying that, and, yeah. and even going to sort of point of saying like we. We're not receiving them back into the church. Some of them weren't allowed to take communion. Mm-hmm. They were allowed to be considered a brother, but not allowed to take communion, mm-hmm. not allowed to be deacons or elders or anything mm-hmm. like that. There was just another, a lower level of citizenship mm-hmm. within the church that yeah. they were that they were sent to. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think about Peter, who in a moment of fear... Mm-hmm does exactly what these people do, mm-hmm. right? You're one of them. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And so we have Jesus himself handling the situation. Yeah. And what does Jesus say? Go and become the chief of my apostles and the first leader of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, fair enough. I'm just saying, if Cyprian yeah. and Novation would have written me some letters, I'd have been like, <laughs> I don't know, let's ask Peter what he thinks. Yeah. Well, Novation was so upset that they even were willing to let people back in, even when they would make them do this public penance, which we don't necessarily know exactly what that looks like. I mean, it right. probably depended on the, the context, right? Um, but in any case, he was so upset about it, he made such a fuss about it that they excommunicated him because he kept just like writing nasty letters, right? He was that person who just keeps writing. Just couldn't get past it. Just like couldn't get, just like, it's just a negative comment card every every Sunday. And they're just like, this guy's got to leave. So they kicked him out uh, and he started his own like parallel church that essentially had virtually the identical doctrine <laughs> to, the, to the main church, except for we don't let lapsed Christians back in. And it lasted till the 8th century. And if you joined the Novationist Church, they would they didn't recognize your former baptism. You had to get baptized. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So they were pretty—they were so serious about this, like, specific thing um, that it splintered—they splintered off and, and did their own thing for a while. It's pretty— uh, It's fascinating because that is hyper-conservative fundamentalist Christianity mm-hmm. in the 3rd century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true, right? <laughs> Nothing and new so, under the sun. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly the point. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that's the, in in some parts, that's the brilliance of studying church history. Mm-hmm. Is we study these situations, and sometimes you're like, well, the circumstances then were very different than they are now. And in some senses, you're like, you know what? It wasn't. It wasn't that different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, yeah, the what they drove and and what they were wearing and the state of their governments were there were differences. There are notable differences, but the heart and the human interactions, mm-hmm. man, there's so much similarity. Yeah, and there's so much value to gain. I remember going into seminary and thinking church history classes were a technicality just for building knowledge, 
Mm. And walking out of those classes thinking, I was so entirely wrong. There was so much spiritual development that took place oh, in this yeah. class. Oh, yeah. I, and, and it'll come from surprising places. There's a there's a, a Roman Catholic monk that we're going to get to in like a couple months. And when I was reading some of his stuff, like just profoundly meaningful mm-hmm. and, and, and deep. And it just, I'm like, I never imagined for a moment that that would happen for me. Just from my experience and my views on on the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval era, and it's crazy. So, like, yeah, th- as as we engage in this, hope I'm hoping that people um, are being encouraged in their faith and their their growing and their appreciation for who God is and how He's been faithful mm-hmm. um, over the years. Um, do you have anything else you wanted? No, to No, I'm about? good. I wanted to share. Just very briefly here, there is an actual Roman record. So that that guy Cyprian, we mentioned, he does end up getting executed. There's another wave of oh, persecution, yeah. right? And right. and this time he doesn't run. And and they have in the Roman record the like the stenographer, whatever they are, like like writing down the not not what's the is it stenographer? Oh boy, court reporter, court reporter. I don't know why I had some other word in my head. I have no idea. Yeah, whatever. Um, and and this is the the brief conversation as he's about to be executed. Again, this is this is not church history. This is the Roman record. Are you Thasius Cyprianus? I am. The most sacred emperor has commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. I refuse. Take heed of yourself. Do as your bid. In so clear a case, I may not take heed. You have long lived an irreligious life and have drawn together a number of men bound by unlawful association and professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and to the religion of Rome and the pious, most sacred and august emperors have endeavored in vain to bring you back to conformity with their religious observances, whereas therefore you've been apprehended as principal and ringleader in these infamous crimes. You shall be made an example to those whom you have wickedly associated with. The authority of law shall be ratified in your blood. And he read the sentence of the court from a written tablet. It is the sentence of this court that Thasius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. And Cyprian said, thanks be to God. And they chopped his head off. And next week, we've been saying time and time again, it's bad, mm-hmm. but it's going to get worse. Yeah, It's bad, but it's going to get worse. Next week... We'll talk about that pinnacle, mm-hmm. uh, that pinnacle moment of persecution. Yeah. So until then, thanks for listening. This yeah. podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care.